keep the door open because people will trickle in and that's just fine. But for, for uh, out of respect for you, I'm going to start on time. Um, before we pray, a quick announcement. On April 1st, I, I met with the staff and we made a decision that I think is the right call. But on April 1st, which is a Wednesday night, we're going to have a suicide awareness presentation by the Memorial Hospital Counseling uh, people. And I, uh, Jessica and I and, and several other people got to talking about how it's always a problem on, when we have Wednesday night activities and you have to choose between one or the other. And so what we've decided to do is all the teachers of Wednesday night classes, we're going to forfeit our class time and encourage you to go to this program because it's such a big problem in our community. So I'll tell you right now, April 1st, I want you to go downstairs and be in the suicide awareness program. Um, if it's not an issue that directly affects you, then whatever you learn can help you help others. So we won't have class here that night because we should all be down there doing that. So and we'll start at six o'clock. Yeah. And we just decided that if we were going to have special programs like that, then maybe that's the best way to do it. You're already in the habit. Meals are going to be the same, you know, and, and that way we try to balance it. But, but just know that on April 1st, there won't be a class up here because we're going to be down there. And I hope you'll come. I just found out today that Memorial Hospital would rather we not announce it as a public event. It's really supposed to be a presentation they're doing for us. Obviously, they can't help it if other people come, but we're not advertising it as open to the public. Just telling you that because Memorial's a little sensitive about that. And there's a backstory, but I won't bother trying to explain it to you. They just, they, they have, they're not prepared to do a lot of public presentations yet. They're doing it more like for a church group or for, you know, a club or something like that. And when you come to our venue, it's easy to make it a public event. And yeah, you'll see. It just, <laughs> I, I, uh, it all fits our vision though. And that's an important thing. Um, that's the only one I wanted to announce to you. Um, we'll be off spring break. So basically this is going to be two, that'll be two Wednesdays in a row. We won't have class because the previous Wednesday is spring break and we traditionally take off that week. And then the following Wednesday is the special program. So just kind of keep that on your radar. If you decide you want to meet, we always throw that option out, but I'll be gone. But if somebody's going to be around that would like to guide discussion of any kind, just so you can stay in the habit, that's fine. Got time to think it over. Uh, before we go any further, I want to pray for you. And, uh, you know, I know you probably have different needs that you've brought today. And if there's uh, any special need or special word of praise that you want to share, that's fine. I'd love to hear it. Otherwise, I'll try to cover all the bases. So, yes, ma'am. Um, the Timbers had their state survey uh, last week. Well, it ended last Tuesday, last Tuesday, and we received a deficiency-free survey, which is a very big deal. Good. Yeah. Congratulations. The highest you can get. Well, that's yeah. probably well, because you came there. Huh? That all happened because you joined their staff. Me. I've been rubbing some of, some of Penny's CBD oil on my head. I got some sore spots up here, you know. Yeah. I'm hoping it'll grow. I, I'm really hoping it'll grow my hair back, but if it doesn't, I don't care. <laughs> All right, what a great way to start out our time of prayer. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your uh, magnificent, amazing love. We invite you to inhabit our space here, to be at home with us, sitting around the table with us. Reveal your truth to us, we pray, because we want our conversation to not only enlighten our intellect, but to 
enliven our souls. Lord, I join with all of those in the circle today who come with prayers and particular needs. I pray for the one who is concerned about relationships and especially those, those most special relationships. I pray, Lord, for those who feel oppressed by dark forces. I pray, Lord, for everyone around the table who is struggling with the health issue, whether it be in the spirit, the mind, or the body. I pray, Lord, for each one who is concerned about a loved one right now. I join with those who are praying for salvation, for themselves, for others, for salvation and renewal and revival for the Christian church and the family of God. I join with all of those around the table, Lord, who are seeking you and desire to be remade by your Holy Spirit so that we can all give you glory and praise you here in this place. I join with all of the unnamed things as we all pray together to the one who knows it all, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, fantastic. So you did your reading. If you don't have the worksheet, there are three or four piles around with a few in each one. Um, I three-hole punched them all this time in case you use the binder like I do. And, uh, but that'll also help you know you got the right one. Um, we'll jump right in here. Did, did, how many of you... Uh, just for the sake of the discussion, how many of you were able to read from the next chapter because you had gotten yourself a copy of the book? Thank you for revealing who I can call on. I have a copy of the book, but I didn't know what to read. Oh, okay. Didn't you just put it under your pillow so you could absorb whatever? Wouldn't that be nice? I know. I could learn all sorts of things that way. You know all sorts of things. <laughs> you know, I... I listened to something, you know, I saw this thing the other day online where you could learn Spanish in your sleep, and I have a feeling all I'd do is dream in Spanish. I, I'd probably still wake up speaking English, so I don't know about that. Uh, so this would be, we did Muhammad last week. We talked about who Muhammad was and, and a little bit of his story. And then we finished with the comparison between Jesus and Muhammad. And by the way, the recording I made last week was a dud because my microphone died and it screwed everything up. So this one should be good. Um, the only way I ever know when I need a new microphone for my pocket recorder is when I get a bad recording. And so that's just unfortunate. But um, so this would be chapter three of the Quran: Divine authorship or authored by men. Now. In my way of thinking, this is a delicate conversation because there are some arguments you can make against the Koran that people could reasonably make against the Bible. So what are we going to do? How are we going to, to clarify that? Um, the reason I'm confident that the Bible is a God-inspired book that is uh, trustworthy and reliable and, and all of that, that those reasons aren't that hard for me to explain, but you as an outsider or maybe my Muslim neighbor could say, well, that's all fine and well for you, but that doesn't prove anything. And so we have to dig a little deeper to, to be able to demonstrate why the Bible is more reliable than the Quran, for example. And uh, how many of you are old enough to remember when they used to spell Quran, you know, K-O-R-A-N? <laughs> And now it's K, it's Q-U-R-A-N or whatever. Well, what do you, when, when you look back at the story, so, so the first question in our, our book at the end of the chapter is, how can both the Bible and the Quran be true if they give conflicting messages? So what do you do with the conflicting messages that you find in the Bible, for example? Have you read anything in the Bible that would seem like it is conflicting itself in some way? I know people have brought up to me at the resurrection, one account has a certain person going into the tomb and finding two angels, and another one has a person arriving and seeing one angel. Mm -hmm. And they say that's a conflict. 
Yeah, that one doesn't bother me too much. It but. doesn't bother me at all because they're just writing what's important to them. And that leads to one response. But what else? Before I say what I think, I want to hear more of what you all think. Yeah. Well, that's true. We're going to get to that. But, but the question on the table is, is, what do you do when you figure out that there's a place in the Bible that seems to contradict or, or, or conflict with itself? Investigate. Investigate. And what is usually happening when you... Uh, read the Bible and you find a place of conflict, what, what do you usually figure out when you investigate? It's like two different people seeing an accident. <clears throat> yeah, that's like with the angels. Well, and with, you know, like the, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in some respects they tell the same story, but they tell it in different words because... You know, yeah. one was sitting here, one was sitting here, one was over there, and their view was different. But the meaning is the same. What it says about Jesus Christ is consistent. Mm -hmm. And it can easily be demonstrated, I say easily, relatively easily, be demonstrated that the Old Testament speaks of Jesus from the very beginning all the way. In Genesis, as soon as there is the fall, the thing that God says to the serpent is, is that a woman's offspring is going to crush your head, even while you're nipping at his heels the whole time. You know, that there's already an allusion to God's fulfillment of the, the plan. Um, so there are two things that you can, you can look at when it comes to... Uh, the contradictions, absolutely what George said, is that like you look at the Gospels, the first three Gospels are called the synoptics, which is a word that means that they're in sync with each other, that they have, they have very uh, similar patterns and, and they parallel each other. The delivery is, the, is, is basically the same, you know, the same events occur in each one at around the same time in each one. So, and, and these people did not coordinate. There's plenty of evidence that the apostles who wrote these were not working together to say, okay, you, you cover his divinity, you cover this, and I'll cover that. What? Um, I was just thinking there's, um, in one of them, Jesus feeds 5,000, and in another one, he feeds 4,000. Mm -hmm. But those um, are in so totally different places in those Gospels that it very likely was two separate events. Yeah, yeah. Um, this has been a question that's been weighing on my mind. You might not have the answer, but um, what do you think it means? Do you think that the snake was kicked out of the Garden of Eden too, or all the animals stayed in there? Well, because it seems like the snake had knowledge too. I have an answer, but that would be uh, a whole class in itself. <laughs> the short version is, is that it's not really a snake. It's Satan. It's a word that describes the embodiment of Satan in something that was probably more like a dragon. Oh, okay. And so, and this is, becomes really clear when you get to, to Revelation, which is way down at the other end of the Bible. And sure enough, this Nahash, which is the word, the Hebrew word, shows up again and it's it's satan in the form of a dragon you know so that's the short version um there's probably snakes in in eden they just don't bite so was was he kicked out or was he allowed to stay was satan yeah oh he was kicked out in fact michael the archangel kicked him out after after the serpent was kicked out of the garden god placed two cherubim at the gate to the garden and, and cherubim in the lore of the angels say, are, are like the Michaels. They're, these, these are guys like, like the Marines. They're like the United States Marine Corps of angels. And he, so he put two of the toughest, baddest, most 
you know, dutiful angels called cherubim at the gate. And it wasn't so that Adam and Eve couldn't get back in because I doubt that he needed to get his biggest, toughest, baddest angels to do that. He probably could have gotten Michael's hamster to do that. Okay. Because the people are pretty puny compared to that. If Michael the archangel kicks Satan out of heaven, why does it say that in the Bible? Well, it doesn't say that in the Bible. And you're well, the why, first... Why doesn't it say that? Well, you're the first person that's ever told me it was Michael. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I've heard that. So it might be true. It might not be. But I don't know that one. I do know, though, that God casts... That it says in Genesis that God casts the serpent out and the people... And then he places guards at the gates to Eden. And the guards aren't there to keep the people out. The guards are there to keep Satan from, you know, he got in the first time and created all kinds of trouble. Then why does it say in the Bible that Satan, in Job, says that Satan went before God with the sons of God? Well, he goes to wherever God can be encountered, but it isn't Eden. Oh, but he was allowed back into heaven. He was allowed to meet with God. Yeah. But it doesn't say where that happens or how that happens. But he was allowed to be in the presence of God in order to issue his challenge. Okay. Sorry. You're fine. It's just, it's just that, that I, I like to imagine between the lines of Scripture, but I take the Scripture literally until literal interpretations just won't work for me. And then I start doing my homework and I usually get where I need to be on it. So that's why I said I, I don't know anything about the idea of Michael being the one that cast him out because the Bible says that God cast him out. Well, you see all those depictions of Michael with his sword in his hand and his foot on the devil like he's going to kill him. Who drew the pictures? I don't know, but there's, People. Most, there's a lot of them. It's a very famous picture. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be something to look into one of these days. Yeah. So the Bible leaves us with questions sometimes that are really hard to answer. But what helps is to read a lot of the Bible at once. What I have found in, and well, we'll go back to what George said for a minute. Um, I've watched enough police, you know, cop shows. How many ever remember Dragnet? Yeah. What a great show. Yeah. I listen to Dragnet radio on the radio. I listen to it all the time because I love to listen to old-time radio shows, and I listen to, to uh, the radio show more than I've actually watched the television show. But, you know, certain police procedures are the same, and they always will be the same, and the number one thing they do is as soon as they're investigating anything, an accident, a crime, or whatever, is they canvas. And you have to imagine that that term means they take a big piece of canvas and throw it out over everybody, so they can catch everybody and talk to them about what they saw. The four Gospels are a per perfect example of canvassing to get a picture of Jesus from four people who knew him best. That's what George just described. And each one described different aspects of Jesus' personality, so we would be incomplete if we didn't have all of those. Because one's really focused on his divinity, one's really focused on, on his Jewishness, one's really focused on his... Uh, human nature, you know, each one's looking at different aspects of his personality and interpreting it. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is, is that, that even those of us who believe because of faith that the Bible is God's uh, primary expression of God's word, it's not the only way you can hear God's word, but it is the best way to understand who God is and how God operates. It's the best thing we've got. And so, and, and I believe that it is God authored. I don't believe that God, like, you know, like when you hear about Joseph Smith or even the author of the Koran, they want to say that he just basically got told, write this down. And that's not really how the Bible is put together. The Bible is a created, it's created by the men who wrote it. And we assume they were all men. There's 66 bo uh, books and about 40 authors. And each of the authors is inspired, but there's no claim that they are penning the literal voice of God as they heard it. They're not dictating, and they never claim to do that. And that's really important because 
later on when you start to realize how the continuity of the Bible is its most telling uh, sign of its authenticity, is to know that these guys didn't get one message, each one at different times in history, from one source. They didn't do it like that. The, the author of the Bible is the one who stitched it all together, the Holy Spirit. And yet the writers did what they did. Now, I personally find that a whole lot more fascinating and believable um, than, than what was said about the, the Quran. Basically what you read in your book, if you had, to, had a chance, is that the Quran was written 200 years after Muhammad, but Muhammad was getting dictation from Gabriel on a regular basis. And because he couldn't write, he had to memorize what Gabriel told him. And then he told it to people who wrote it down, but apparently they didn't compile all of that into a Quran until 200 years later. And then the claim today is that that Quran is word for word out of the mouth of Gabriel, which is a pretty big leap. And yet we don't claim that about the Bible. We, we, we claim that it is inspired by God. That the authors, when they sat down to wrote, write, were trying to accomplish something specific in what they wrote, and then God canonized it. And canonization is, is, is like a, um, it's, a, it's based in a Latin word, but it just means that it's, it's justified. Like the, the reason that the Bible canon is consistent throughout history and doesn't include any extra books or take away any books over the years, you know, where, where my, my Bible has 66 books in it, but your Bible has 48 because you got it back, you know, like, like the American flag, you know, you got, you know, some of us might have flags in our closet somewhere that, that have 48 stars on them. And well, that's an outdated flag. Now we have a couple more states, but you can't say that about the Bible. The Bible has been consistent. Now, some people are going to ask about the apocryphal books that some of them have seen in their Catholic friends Bible. That actually was in the, um, the King James Bible for the first hundred years or so that it was published. And which, which really messes with your hardcore King James Bible thumpers who say, this is the same one Jesus used and that's why it's the only one that's right. You know, <laughs> which is really funny because then when you tell them, well, you know, actually the one that King James authorized and got printed for the first hundred years or so, hundred like 25 years after King James authorized the first one, it always included the apocryphal books, so it looked exactly like the one the Catholics carry. The apocryphal books are called apocryphal, meaning that they are not part of the canon, but they are supportive in that they tell the story in that gap period of about 400 years between Joel and the arrival of John the Baptist. But they do not claim to be canonical, meaning they are not justifying themselves because they don't refer to Jesus in any particular way. King James was Catholic. Yeah. He was also typical of monarchy at the time. He was good at sowing his seed in a variety of places. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I used to let... Cause See, I was this Catholic kid from Pittsburgh that got sent in my beginning of my junior year to a little high school north of Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the heart of the Bible Belt. And oh my goodness, it was fun because all the girls wanted to date me because I was different, you know, because not a wide variety to choose from. And when these kids from out of state come in for, the, you know, whatever. But it was also a really negative experience because I had all these kids that were Southern Baptists. You know, I basically had three choices. And there's a point to this story. I had about three choices as far as making friendships. I could either run with the ag crowd because they had a big FFA program there and, and all that. So I could run with the ag crowd, but I had nothing in common with them. I could run with the jocks because it's Oklahoma. Football is king. You know, it's, it's huge in that part of the country. Or... I, well, there's four choices. I could run with the burnouts and the drunks. Or I could run with the religious crowd. So I ran with the religious crowd because they were nice kids and I liked hanging out with nice kids. So it just happened by evolution. Well, of course, they all had to get me straightened out because if I'm Catholic, I'm practically next to the Antichrist myself. You know, y'all believe in the Pope. Everybody knows the Pope's Antichrist. And, and on and on it went. And these people started telling me all these things. 
And I wanted to be accepted. I want to get along. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 16 years old and pretty girls want me to go out with them. And I've made this joke. You've heard me make this joke. This is a literal fact. At least twice I got saved because it was the only way I could go out with the girl. And the funniest part of it is I had no idea that's what was going on in her mind. She just wanted to know if I'd go to church with her on Wednesday night. And I said, sure, why not? Our church doesn't have anything on Wednesday night. So I'd go. And then at the end of the service, a bunch of people go down to the altar and pray. And she wanted me to go with her. And I thought, okay, great. You know, I'll pray that this weekend the weather's nice up at the lake because that's where I'm thinking about taking you. And then the next morning she says, it's okay if we go out. Mom says, it's okay now that you got saved. And I'm like, what? I am not joking. This, is, this happened to me at least twice. The second time I was getting on a little wiser about it, you know. Well, so I started feeling like a real chump because these people are talking to me about my own faith in ways that I don't think is true. But the truth is, I didn't know what was true. Because you know how it is when you grow up in a religion. You just know what you think you know about it. Um, it's like I'm pretty knowledgeable about what it means to be a Methodist or a follower of the traditions of Charles and John Wesley. But that's because I adopted this religion. So I, in, I embraced it and, and intentionally learned about it. And what's really cool is, is that in an effort to understand what was wrong with what my friends were saying to me, I learned more about what it meant to be Catholic then. And then when I went to seminary to learn how to be a United Methodist clergy person, I really learned a lot about what it meant to be Catholic, which is really funny when you think about it. Because you just can't learn about church history and doctrine and the differences between the different doctrines and things without having a better understanding. So when I got to Oklahoma, all these Southern Baptist friends of mine were just trying like crazy to get me straightened out because I'm such a raving heathen as far as they're concerned. And I started learning about what they believe in everything. And they're asking questions like, I, I, you know, junior in high school comes up to me and says, you believe in predestination? And I'm thinking, I don't even know what you're talking about. So I found out and uh, old Johnny Calvin, you know, he's still a little off by my way of thinking. And I know a lot more about him now, but then some other person would say, do you think once saved, always saved? And I'm like, who talks about stuff like this? I don't know. And the end of my story is simply this. There came a point when I had outlearned them. And what they knew is stuff they got told by their youth minister or their pastor on Sunday night or Wednesday night. And it was a lot of preaching with opinions. And so they were teaching, they were passing on what they thought was worth knowing, not teaching people to think critically. You're beginning to understand how my way of doing this pastor thing shaped. Because I can go all the way back to the 1970s and think about a day in my life, when I realized, when it dawned on me that I now knew more about what it meant to be a Southern Baptist and a Catholic and a Seventh-day Adventist and all this, than most of my friends, because everything they knew, they were told, and that's all they knew. And it, what happens if they're told wrong? And if you listen to me carefully when I preach about once every month or so, I say, you check me out on this. Don't take it for granted that what I'm telling you is true, because I don't want a bunch of numb-headed knuckleheads follow me around because they think I know Jesus personally. I know Jesus personally, but you don't need to know me to know him. And you don't have to believe what I believe to know him. But I do want you to be thinking Christians and I want you to be equipped to deal with stuff. And all of that can go all the way back there because you know what happened one day I told one of my friends that I had, had absolute fact that I could prove to them that the King James Bible for the first 125 years of existence had the same apocryphal books in it that my Catholic Bible that my parents bought me because I kept bugging them about wanting a Bible. Now, you know, because I'm trying to catch up with the kids in my school. I mean, we didn't even worry about having Bibles when I was in Pittsburgh, but now I'm in, <laughs> now I'm in Oklahoma and I need a Bible because I got to figure out what they're talking about so I can deal with it. And when I would look some of my Southern Baptist friends in the eye and say, I can prove to you that the King James Bible used to have the apocryphal books in it. You could see their minds explode right before your eye. Their heads would swell momentarily and then start to collapse on themselves because they had just had their minds blown. It was just incredible, you know, because they had no answer for it. You know, they and then and they well, I told my preacher what you said, and he said, well, that was of the devil. And that's why they took it out. Really? Well, what about the Anabaptists? They came after King James Bible, and they're like, who? Anabaptists? We're Southern Baptists. No, 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 Anabaptists. And on and on it would go. So 
I'm just saying it, it pays to get some knowledge. And I'm sorry for the speech, but this is, this is what this is about. I, I don't want to lead you to just say, well, Pastor Dan says you can't trust people from Islam. Or, and I don't want you to do that. I want you to be thinking people who can say, well, it's because I can't find the authenticity in the Quran that I find in Scripture. That's the point of tonight's discussion. So, so what are some of the arguments in the book about... Uh, the, so the Muslim people believe the Quran is the most perfect book ever. And why do they think so? Why did, how do they defend that belief? What are some of the things you read? Of course, you already said that supposedly Gabriel dictated it to Allah. Um, of course, he, nobody wrote it, actually wrote it down for a long time. And... That takes you to uh, one of the reasons is that Allah is preserving the Quran. Of course, he's only preserving it in Arabic. But. Mm -hmm. And now compare that to... Um, Allah is preserving the Quran. Okay. But, he did, but, but you, you, I think you may have misspoke just a little because when you first spoke, said it, you said that God, oh. that Gabriel dictated it to Allah, but I'm, I'm sure you meant Muhammad, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, he dictated it to Muhammad. Yeah, as the word of Allah. As the word of Allah. Yeah, yeah. And Allah um, was the moon god. <laughs> well, and, and that, listen, you all remember going to Jericho? I don't know about you, but Jericho was fun. We met some nice people, but Jericho's always creeped me out. The Bible version of Jericho creeps me out and the modern version of Jericho creeped me out. And it's because it's a city that was for, for as long as anyone can remember dedicated to the moon god. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of storyline behind that. But, but what it, when, what, like whenever we did the, remember I did Jeremiah a while back, the book of Jeremiah. And there was a reason that God was more concerned about them taking out some cities entirely than others. And God was determined that they would utterly destroy. Well, actually, he utterly destroys it. They just watch. You know, who destroyed Jericho? Well, it wasn't the Israelites. They just marched around for a while, stood still and watched. And the rest happened because God did it. And probably Christ in, in precarnate form is, is a better way to look at it. But... It was because it's the house of the moon god. And it means that some of the guys they had fighting for them were probably some of these creepy characters from Genesis 6. Okay? So it's way more interesting when you look at it that way. But, so, so when you compare the Quran and the Bible, honestly, which would you think is easier to defend? Now, I really want you to do some critical thinking here and... and, and you know, if you want me to talk less, all you have to do is talk more. I'm serious. That's why we have microphones all the way down the table. But, but if you were trying to defend a book that you believed was passed down for 1,500 years as the absolute word of God dictated directly to Muhammad, who memorized it all, and then because he didn't actually dictate it himself to others, he actually had people who memorized what he said, who then told the people who wrote it down. So we have the memorized version that Muhammad had, which is memorized in different parts by different people. Did you ever see the Book of Eli? That movie, it's Denzel Washington, yeah. post-apocalyptic thing. The bad guys try so hard to, I'm gonna ruin the ending for you. <laughs> the bad guys try so hard to get the book because they think that he, you know, whoever's got this book has all the power. And when he finally gets it away from him, it crumbles into dust. Because Eli's never used it. Eli had it memorized. And so when Eli finally gets to the true believers, he just starts speaking and everybody starts writing it down like scribes. So I didn't spoil everything for you, but, you know, because the real twist is the part I won't tell you. But, but the thing is, this is they're, they're claiming Eli, well, excuse me, Muhammad, memorized everything Gabriel told him over years of time in between wars and, you know, decimating his enemies. And, and, and then he, 
And then he, in part, is memorized by different people, his generals, his friends, his associates, and so forth, who they, at different times, communicate what they remember to the person who's writing all this down. And eventually, now I know it sounds like I'm trying to bash it, but I'm telling you, this is the progression described in our book. So if you're a modern believer in the book of Quran as the word of God, do you find that easier to defend or the Bible? Which is 66 books written by 40 different authors or so, and all over different periods of time and never in any way trying to, to state that what they are writing is intended to be the literal word of God. Have you, when, when I was in school, we'd have a teacher tell one person a big, long the old telegraph game. And then they were supposed to tell the next person. Then it got down the way down to the end, and the whole story was totally 100% different yep. than the original. Yep. So, oral tradition is a very powerful communicator in a culture that has no writing. Yes. But Muhammad lived in a time where there was reading and writing. He just didn't happen to know how to do that. Well, and Janusik says that the, uh, one of the strongest arguments against the standard belief about um, the Quran is that the alphabet and the written language were underdeveloped at the time. In other words, at the time they're claiming that this was written, the kind of prose that's in there and the, the writing style doesn't match up with the development of their alphabet and their, their literary form. So... Um, he goes into a, a really interesting argument about how an awful lot of what's in the Quran is reworded stuff that they could have gotten from Jewish scriptures and from Christian tradition, which is really interesting. And do you remember that in one of the chapters, in the, one of the first two chapters, Janicek even says that there are writings on the side of the Dome of the Rock. Now, if you were there, there's all kinds of Arabic writing on the side that refer to Jesus, that refer to God, you know, and, and, and Abraham and stuff like that. And it's like, that's very interesting, you know. Um, so, so anyway, just, just to kind of help us keep going. So could you defend the Quran as a book that has accurately communicated the very word of God as it was translated or, or written, uh, spoken to Gabe? to Gabriel, from God, to Muhammad, through a variety of people in Muhammad's entourage, and then compiled by a single author or group of editors, and it's still the voice of God, literally. Can, would you find that difficult to defend? Yes, absolutely. On the other hand, your Bible, you consider sacred, has 66 books in it that were all written at different times by 40 or so different people, do you find that hard to defend? Why or why not? Because it, it references all the way through. That, yeah. that thing, the things oh. said in the Old Testament are revealed in the New Testament. That, to me, is... There's, there's a, a, a continuity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's miraculous in nature because it's a continuity that shouldn't be possible, if you think about it. I'm going to give you an example. I just heard this one last night, and my, my soul is really working this one over right now. And I've, every year of my Christian life, about every, every two years, I get this new sort of cathartic experience that becomes one of my themes for the next couple of years until God gives me a new one. And here's the new theme at its very infancy. So the Garden of Eden, we're not going back to your question. <laughs> The Garden of Eden is where God walks with the people. He, he creates a place where he can be with his principal creation, the primary thing that he created. He created everything else, but, but his main creation is people. So he puts the people there, and then he communes with them. He interacts with them. He dwells with them. I, I just like saying this because I love the sound of it. You know, he goes for strolls in the garden with with them in the cool of the evening. And I just think every time I pray, I wish it could be like that, that I could just go for a stroll in the cool garden with a really cool God, you know. And 
then they sin. Satan interferes with the plan. They sin. It was their decision to sin, by the way. Satan can't make you. The devil didn't, you know, I love my whole Red, Red Skelton reference a couple of weeks ago. I loved it because it was fun for me. You know, but the devil made me do it. Doesn't work. You, you, devil can't make you sin, but he can sure make it easy for you. And if you're not really strong and really depending on the Holy Spirit, you probably will. So they sinned. And then they're no longer able, God is no longer able to be with them. But almost as soon as they're cast out, we hear that Cain and Abel, the firstborn you know, sons, the first generation of sons of Adam and Eve, are presenting sacrifices to God. And depending on the version you read, it's pretty evident that is something that God honors by consuming it with fire of some kind. So almost from the very beginning, Abel makes a sacrifice that God really likes. And the reason they know is because God goes and, you know, gobbles it up with fire. Like, like God makes God's self present in that sacrifice. So, so now God can't be with them anywhere they are, but he can dwell in their worship. At the moment when they present themselves clean before God, God can be present at least momentarily in order to receive their sacrifice. And the reason Cain got in so much trouble was because God didn't want his sacrifice. And it doesn't say it in so many words, but you know, you get the impression Cain's like, hey, I'm here, what's wrong with this? And God finally tells him what's wrong with it. Or actually Abel probably told him, I'll tell you what's wrong with it, Cain. You're not fooling God. He ain't coming down for that nonsense. You know what you're supposed to do. And so, you know, what does Cain do? He kills him for it. Like, well, okay. Then God did come down to visit with him. And you know, that was pretty scary. So later on in, in the Bible, we hear that when Abraham makes sacrifices, when anybody makes sacrifices, God is present in this flame that descends and consumes the sacrifice. In the, in the Exodus, God is present in the flame at night and the cloud by day. God is present in a little tent of meeting. And no one could experience his presence without dying, probably. And then they have the tabernacle. And the people can experience God's presence in the tabernacle from a distance. And the priests who are ministering the sacrifices are ceremonially clean so that they can experience God's presence. So God keeps expanding the size of God's dwelling place on earth. It keeps getting bigger because eventually, you know, remember the story. And this is one of my favorite you know, proofs that God has a sense of humor is there's the whole story about the prophets of Baal and Elijah, you know, and, and they build this big uh, uh, altar and uh, to Baal and, and um, they start dancing around until they wear a rut in the ground. And, and, you know, and Elijah's over there sitting on the sidelines, just, just catcalling and making all kinds of trouble. And he finally says, and this is one of my favorite lines in the Bible, just because it's there. He says, what's the matter, ball over in the toilet or something? Can't show up right now? He does say that. <laughs> he literally says to them, I'll bet ball's in the bathroom, and that's why he can't come down right now to burn up your sacrifice. And when they finally give up, because they've worn themselves out, worn a groove in the ground, Elijah has them pour all kinds of water over the fire, or over the sacrifice that they're going to burn. And of course, it fills even the water, fills the trough they've worn into the ground around it. So this whole thing is soaked in water. And then he calls out on the name of the Lord God and fire comes down and consumes not only the sacrifice, but it vaporizes the water and it consumes the prophets of Baal. Fire came down to acknowledge God's presence. God was visible in the fire. So then later on in the Bible, we get the Temple of Solomon and his presence is there and the experience of God, the dwelling place of God has gotten bigger yet. And then we get later on the Temple of Herod. Actually, Ezra had one for a little while, but nobody ever counts that one for some reason. So the, the next temple should actually be the fourth one, but nobody ever says that. So whatever. So there's a second temple, that's Herod's temple. And the way they know that God's there or supposed to be there is because of the fire. And, and what's funny is by this point, the house for God has gotten bigger. And there's a whole story that I don't even want to get into right now because I'd have too much fun and waste your time. But 
Solomon's temple, David's not worthy to build it because he's got too much blood on his hands, but God wants to be with us. He wants to dwell here. That was the plan from the very beginning, to dwell with us. And the reason David is a man after God's own heart isn't because he's deep inside, not as rotten as he was, because he was rotten. He did a lot of really dumb things. But the thing David had going for him was is he wanted God to dwell here. And everything he did was a, is intending to get God to be able to dwell here. That's everything he did was geared towards that. And that's the thing about him that God liked so much. And, and he was dumb about it. You know, he, he, he got one of his underlings killed because he didn't stop him from touching the Ark of the Covenant. Because what he wanted, he didn't understand. This is holy. This is not something you can treat frivolously. You've got to understand, you know. So then we get to even further down the road. And Jesus comes along, and what happens at Pentecost? Fire comes down, and it appears on the heads of all the people there. So what's it saying about God being present among us? He's expanded his space even further. Now, God can dwell anywhere God is welcome to dwell. But we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have to welcome the filling of the Holy, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because when the, when the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens to us, then we're little places where God dwells. Each one of us is a dwelling place for God when we welcome the Holy Spirit. And that's what the message of the flame. Now, let me ask you something. If you're trying to defend the Bible to your Muslim friend or your just unbelieving friend, and they say, well, how's the Quran any different from the Bible? Well, you can tell them what you know about the Quran now. And then you can say... Look at the Bible. It's written over a period of 4,000 years, roughly. And it's written into 66 different books. The only ones that might be pretty well connected are the first five. But for the most part, the rest of them are pretty independent of each other, independently authored over a period of 4,000 years. And yet there's this continuity throughout the whole story that's true even to this day. And you can just use the flame example as a way of describing that to them. Now, what's that make you think? I gotta stop preaching and drink something here. Well, if anybody challenges me on the validity of the Bible, you can take it from a historical standpoint. So, you know, there's a number of things that history has proven that happened, you know, the Tower of Babel, yep. for one. I mean, there's, there's obviously a whole bunch of them, but history has proven that these have all actually happened. Now, it hasn't proved every single one of them. If it has, I'm not aware of it, but enough has been proven that you say, you know, if, if A, B, and C, then probably D. And that's very good, because you're absolutely right. There's all kinds of historical archaeological evidence that supports the things the Bible claims. And that's happening more all the time. That's right. And, and some people would argue that as we get closer to Christ's return, even more will be revealed as a way of winning over the undecided. Yes. Um, when I was working on my bachelor of nursing, in our statistics class, I did this through Liberty University, so it was a Christian school. In statistics, we had to take prophecies from the Old Testament and assign them a probability that it would ever actually happen about Christ. And then you put them all together, and the probability that Jesus, as just Jesus, would fulfill all those probabilities is infinitesimally small. Yep. yep. It's impossible that one man, unless it was all those prophecies are true. Yep. There's so much continuity in it, and history is constantly being updated with archaeological fact. And, you know, and, and, and I, I do beg the forgiveness of the ones who didn't go to Israel, but it gives me a chance to let them tell the story too. One of the things that happens when you go over there is you begin to realize that, man, you don't want to be in the construction business in Israel. 
you bid a project, you say, I can get it done in, in 180 days and, and I'll beat that and get the bonus. And you do that just like we do in this country with a project. And then you dig three shovels full of something and a little artifact pops up. You're done. The Antiquities Authority in Israel has about the same authority as the IRS here. And, you know, if you pull up a fragment of bone or a piece of pottery or something, you're done. <laughs> you know, but that is also how, and, and you know why it's so important over there, by the way? Because, think about the news yesterday. Israel's delighted with Trump's announcement. Palestinians are very uptight about his announcement. Israel's saying, well, it's about time somebody recognized that the Golan Heights and the, and the West Bank belong to us because it belonged to our kings, it belonged to our predecessors, it's always belonged to our people. And they say that, Netanyahu said that. And yet the Palestinians are saying, uh-uh, no, no, our tribes lived there for a long time, which isn't untrue. But they don't really have a deed to the land. They were nomadic people who ended up there at the time Israel became a nation and they said, well, we're not moving. We like it here. I don't know what the answer to that question is, but my point is, you know why archeology span is such a big deal over there? Because every one of Israel's claims, if they can prove it archeologically, makes it harder for their opponents to justify what they do to them. And Israel's not worried about convincing their enemies to change their minds. And I don't know about you, but I heard a sermon on Sunday where I heard that you can't change anybody else's mind. But you can reach out with evidence to people whose minds are open and reveal truth to them that will get them to back you up. So Israel's not that concerned about whether their neighbors ever believe any of this stuff is true, because they probably won't. But they do want America to believe it. They do want Europe to believe it. They do want the Western world to see that they're not just making this up. Well, they're doing us all a favor then, since we're Judeo-Christian people. Everything they prove about the Old Testament then proves in its own way the validity of our New Testament. And if you talk to a really honest scripture reading Jew, you know, because they got, they got lackadaisical Jews just like we got lackadaisical Christians, you know. But if you talk to somebody who's really serious about their Jewish faith, they'll tell you that they can't really dispute anything about Jesus other than the fact that they don't think he was the Messiah. And I always say, and those people are still waiting for Messiah, and that's fine. When Jesus shows up, we'll say, good to see you again. And they'll say, it's nice to see you finally. <laughs> you know, that's the way I look at it. It's like, welcome back, Jesus. Welcome for the first time, Messiah. Whatever. It ends the same at that point for the Jews and the Christians. And that's the point. So, so it's like, yeah, George makes a great point. There are so many things that prove the Bible to be true that are purely historical and scientific sort of in nature, just because every time you pull up an artifact that demonstrates that, you know, when they found the grave of Caiaphas, that proves that there was a high priest named Caiaphas. When they find the grave of Herod up there at the Herodian, that means there really was a Herod. And they find all these records about him that are not biblical in nature that say the same thing about him the Bible says about him. So all of a sudden, all these things start to add up. And, you know, we can always say, gosh, you know, wouldn't it have been better if the Romans hadn't been there to make it all so different? The Romans were there because they were a bunch of bureaucrats who wrote everything down. And we can thank them for that, because if Jesus had not come when this bureaucratic federal type government, you know, in other words, a, a precursor to the United States, you know, if they hadn't come around then, we wouldn't have such good records to prove that our Bible is true. Because when they're trying to explain to Caesar and the Senate why these people are so difficult, they're explaining our history to us. And so it's all recorded in Rome. You can say, boy, the Vatican is so full of secrets and they got all this weird stuff there. And I'm not going to get into whether or not I think Catholics are right, wrong or whatever, or whether the Pope is, is evil. I, but I can tell you this, they are so eager to prove their case that they have collected data for centuries. That supports me, too. You know, so a lot of things that we consider bad or, or untrue are also our friend. They help us. And when you look at all of the arguments that Islamic people stand on, well, honestly, I think it takes more faith to be a Muslim than it does to be a Christian or a Jew.
It really, and, and, I, and I, don't cre- I don't mean to criticize. And we haven't even gotten into the different, you know, to the Sunni and Shia versions. Because when we start getting into that, you're going to start to begin to understand where the real drama that we're living with right now is coming from. But it's pretty humanistic in its origins. Um, there are no records in the Quran of miracles or any divine interventions or anything, yet the Bible is consistently talking about God's action. And it's the part about God that's always true. That's the part where the continuity comes through. It's, it's like, you know, they write from different perspectives. Um, but there was one other thing I was going to say about the Christian, uh, the conflict in the Christian Bible that, that you should look at is keep in mind, too, that they wrote in different literary forms. There's a whole branch of Bible study in the, in the seminaries and the universities. You know, there's a whole branch of Bible study called literary criticism. And it means that all they do is read it like they would any other classic literature. You know, so there are people out there, experts on Shakespeare, and they argue with other experts on Shakespeare about what Shakespeare really meant or whether he wrote this or some unknown bard or whatever. And yet... There are people who do the same thing with the Bible and they're literary experts and they'll just say, well, Psalms are this kind of literary form. Chronicles are this kind of literary form. You see what I'm saying? And in certain literary forms, they use hyperbole, which is, which is exaggeration. They just exaggerate to make a point, you know, smoking crawfish, like we were talking about right before we got started, you know. Jethro said something about smoking crawfish and he knew what he meant, but the hippies didn't know what he meant. So they kept trying to figure out how to put those things in their mouth and light them up without getting pinched. And it's because that literary form of Jethro's proclamation that smoked crawdads are the best is being misinterpreted by a different hearer. And that same thing happens with Scripture, which is why we have to do what you said, is do our homework. We've got we to do our homework. We, we have to contextualize what we're reading so that we are not mistaken about these things. Um, a really wonderful example, and I think it's in Thessalonians, but there's this wonderful example where Paul says, yeah, when we were there, we baptized four people. No, wait a minute. I think it was actually two. Come to think of it, I don't really remember how many people we baptized. That's in the Bible. So what kind of literary form is that? That's yours truly babbling and somebody writing it down because they think it's important. You know, I, I mean, and, and what's cool is, is he does say things that are really important, but he's also this very human author who's admitting that he doesn't remember everything he's telling you exactly right. And yet somehow God communicates through it anyway. And the reason you know it's God communicating because it's the same message, it's the same theme that comes from 4,000 years and uh, 66 books, you know? That's the thing that's so remarkable. I have two minutes. Getting back to the Quran. Oh yeah, that. Uh, (laughs) It says here, the Muslims believe that the original Quran is written on a tablet that is eternally kept in heaven. Yeah. Do they still believe that thing? Well, I mean, that's what it says. I, and, and, you know, I, I tell you, an awful lot of what I know is coming from this book for me, too. Um, you said there's different versions. They said the original. Yeah. Does that mean like a different translation? Or? Whatever language Gabriel used to communicate it to Muhammad, who recited what he remembered in Arabic, which was more of a spoken language than, than a written language, mm-hmm. So presumably whatever is written in heaven, well, at least he heard it in Arabic. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt on that one. I would assume that if an angel speaks to me in whatever language, you know, Paul refers to the language of the angels, you know, sometimes speaking in tongues is described as using words and languages that are not familiar to you, which means that I might speak Russian to you when the spirit comes over me because I don't naturally speak Russian. But if I do, there should be someone in the room who can translate what I just said, if it's a thing of God, if it's an act of the Spirit. But then Paul describes another form of speaking in tongues where you're speaking in an unknown language to anyone because it's an angelic language. So if Gabriel spoke in an angelic language to someone, I suppose they'd hear and understand because 
it was meant that they would understand. So I'll give them that one. But the book being on file at the records office in heaven, all right. I, you know, that's a pretty good answer because you can't prove or disprove it. So anything else? It's seven o'clock. Courtney's going to be mad at me. She may be smaller than me, but she can take me out. George, would you give us a prayer? God, one. Dear loving Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus, thank you for your promise that if we call on you, you will hear us and answer us. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. You have revealed yourself through this Bible study that we have had. Continue speaking to us so that we can know your will. In Jesus' name we pray and believe. Amen. 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 Thank you, George. God bless you, everybody. Have a great week. I think we'll have a good recording this time. I'll get it ready for you as soon as I can.